Hey, Notorious Bakersfield fans. Notorious Bakersfield, the book, is available for purchase. If you enjoy this podcast, you'll love the book. Notorious Bakersfield, the book, dives deeper into the most infamous crimes, incidents, and personalities that have shaped Bakersfield. This literary adaptation uncovers 30 astonishing true stories from Bakersfield and Kern County's last century. Notorious stories from a notorious community. To purchase your copy, go to Amazon.com or your Amazon app and search for Notorious Bakersfield, the book. This is the Notorious Bakersfield podcast. I'm Robert Peterson, the host and creator of this podcast that takes a look back at some of Bakersfield's most notorious crimes, events, and characters. Before getting started on this episode, I wanted to remind everybody that I will be at Jerry's Pizza and Pub in downtown Bakersfield, the iconic Jerry's Pizza and Pub, 1817 Chester Avenue. I'll be there from 1.30 to 2.30 on December 16th. That's a Saturday. And I'll be selling the Notorious Bakersfield book, newly released. If you haven't gotten your copy, come on by, grab a copy, uh, eat some pizza, world-famous Jerry's Pizza and Pub, 1817 Chester Avenue, 1.30 p.m. this Saturday, December 16th. And then this. I want to uh, share a voicemail I got with, uh, with you. A few months ago, I covered a story about the 1961 kidnapping of Babe Joso, the co-owner of Mason Joso's. He and his brother Martin own Mason Joso, and I think there might have been another partner. Babe Joso and his wife and son were kidnapped. I really struggled with the French names and fully expected to get called out for mispronouncing all of those names. And I was. A listener did contact me and let me know that I mispronounced a couple of names, which I was expecting. That episode was published back in April of this year. It's titled The Joso Family Kidnapping. You can go back and listen to it if you'd like. As I said, I expected listeners to contact me regarding how badly I pronounced the French names. What I wasn't expecting is this voicemail this listener left for me. Evidently, she just heard the story and wanted to contact me. Hey, just thought you should know. The kidnapping didn't happen to Baby. It happened to Baby's brother-in-law and sister-in-law, partners in the Joso restaurant with Martin and Baby, and Baby wasn't a guy. Baby was the wife of Martin who ended up owning the restaurant. Just helping you out with your facts there. Now, I'm not an expert on the Joso family. I think I've met maybe like one member of the Joso family. The kidnapping story in 1961 was a big news story in Bakersfield when it happened. The Bakersfield Californian covered it extensively over the course of several days. I use the Bakersfield Californians' coverage of that event exclusively. There weren't any other sources to use. Could the Bakersfield Californian have gotten some of the details wrong? 
Absolutely. It wouldn't have been the first time or the hundredth time. But for the Californian to have gotten the story entirely wrong, I doubt it. They would have had to get the victim's name wrong. They would have had to get the victim's picture wrong over a course of several days. I don't think that's the case. I think this listener's confusion stems from the fact that there were two people in the Joso family who had the nickname Babe. There was Dermai Joso, who was the story is about. Um, he His nickname was Babe. Coincidentally, Dermide's brother married a woman whose nickname was also Babe. So there were two people in the Joso family who went by Babe. If the person who left me the voicemail, if she wants to email me at NotoriousBakersfield at gmail.com, I can send you the copies of the Bakersfield Californian with all of the information regarding the story, including the picture who is clearly a male, and it identifies him as Babe Joso. Just helping you out with your facts there. In the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, musicians Bill Woods, Jelly Sanders, Fuzzy Owen, Louis Talley, Bonnie Owens and Gene Moles were frequent performers at the Honky Tonk on Edison Highway, known as the Lucky Spot. It was the place to be and be seen. That's where the crime for this notorious Bakersfield story takes place. As you'll learn, the Lucky Spot certainly wasn't lucky for a gentleman named Pete Hogan in 1950. This is Honky Tonk Murder. Well, I got a gal, she's sweet as can be Heard a little thing, she's in love with me She loves a honky-tonk song Lord, a honky-tonk song In 1950, Ellsworth Carl Hogan lived on Oakdale Drive with his wife, Catherine, a teenage daughter named Joanne, and a few other extended family members. Ellsworth went by Pete. He owned a successful produce trucking company in Bakersfield, and Catherine worked at the Teamsters Union Hall as a cashier. On the night of Saturday, August 5, 1950, Pete was at the Lucky Spot Cafe on Edison Highway without his wife. As Saturday turned into Sunday, Pete played cards until the club closed down. The Lucky Spot, as the name implies, was a gambling hall, but it was also one of the many honky-tonk clubs in and around Bakersfield at the time. The Lucky Spot is where Merle Haggard is purported to have taken the stage for the first time when the club's regular band leader was not around. This kind of joint was where the Bakersfield sound originated. While electric guitars twanged, men and women drank, danced, and played friendly games of chance. The Lucky Spot was no stranger to disturbances. Every now and then, gunfire would break out and folks would leave the club at closing in handcuffs. The Kern County Sheriff's Department routinely had a deputy or two posted there nearly every weekend to address any troubles. The early morning hours of Saturday, August 6th, found Deputy Al Giggy at the lucky spot. The club was closing 
so Pete filed out the door as Deputy Giggy swept the club for stragglers. Pete walked toward his car. As a freight train roared by, a shot rang out. Pete slumped to the ground and lay there until he was discovered a few minutes later, shot in the head. Whoever shot Pete made their getaway under the cover of night. An ambulance was called, but it was too late. Pete was dead on arrival at the hospital. He was 35 years old. When Deputy Giggy found Pete, he was lying face down about a hundred yards from the bar. No money was missing from Pete's wallet. In fact, it still held $800 in cash, over 10000 in today's money. There was no struggle. His car was still there. He had been ambushed, and there were no witnesses. It's probable that no one even heard the gun go off because of the train passing by. Deputy Giggy knew Pete. He was a regular at the Lucky Spot, and the deputy considered Pete a friend. Pete was well regarded in Bakersfield. He had a prosperous business and was a member of the Eagles Lodge. No one knew why anyone would want him dead. It was a mystery. The mystery held Bakersfield in suspense until good old-fashioned police work turned up suspects. Soon, an intricate story began to unravel. A few weeks after the murder, Pete's wife, 42-year-old Catherine, was charged with her husband's death. Two other men were also charged, Charles Lewis, 33, and ex-GI Eddie Thominson, just 19 years old. The district attorney's case was made on the premise that Catherine hired Charles Lewis and Eddie Thominson to kill her husband, promising each $2,100 from the proceeds of a couple of double indemnity life insurance policies. These insurance policies would pay more than their face value in the case of certain types of death, like murder. Each defendant pleaded not guilty, and their attorneys asked for the charges to be dropped. The judge denied those motions. Then something totally unexpected happened. Eddie Thominson took out a marriage license. Yes, at the same courthouse where he was appearing before a judge in his murder case, Thominson stopped to see the clerk of the court so he could get the paperwork to wed an 18-year-old woman named Iva Anderson. But the wedding would have to wait because Thominson was sent back to jail until the trial. The prosecutor claimed that this was a stunt. It turns out that Thominson intended Iva Anderson as a witness in the case. Miss Iva Anderson knew details about Eddie's involvement in the murder of Pete Hogan. She could be compelled to testify against him. But if she were Mrs. Eddie Thominson, she would not be made to testify because of spousal testimony privilege. Iva's mother was interviewed by a reporter from the Bakersfield Californian and said the couple had known each other for about three months and that it was true love. The trial for the three began at the end of November 1950. The prosecution had a slate of 26 witnesses, 
and the defense prepared a list of more than 50 for the three defendants. The district attorney's office laid out their case, claiming that Catherine Hogan hired Eddie Thomason and Charles Lewis to kill her husband because she was tired of being married to him. The DA claimed on the night of the murder, Thomason and Lewis drove to the lucky spot and sat in wait. After Thomason fired the fatal shot, Lewis drove the getaway car. When they stopped at a gas station, Lewis phoned Catherine to let her know that the job was complete. But before the trial could really even get underway, another surprise threw the court for a loop. An 18-year-old man named John Harvey came forth for the prosecution to say that Catherine had approached him out of the blue to kill Pete. He was promised $500 and a 1936 Ford in exchange for the murder. But Harvey decided to play Catherine for as much money as he could get and never did the murder as she had asked. He got $25 and the car minus the pink slip before he left town. It was learned during the trial that in June of 1950, just a couple of months before Pete's murder, Catherine filed for divorce. Everything was settled between the couple, including a division of property, and Pete moved out, but for only a few weeks. By July, the couple was back together. After Pete had promised Catherine he would stop drinking and running around with other women, they celebrated their reconciliation with a few out-of-town overnight trips. Pete and Catherine even contemplated a move to Salinas to start a new business. Numerous witnesses testified that they had been approached by Catherine to murder Pete. A truck driver in Tulsa, Oklahoma, was tracked down by investigators and brought back to Bakersfield. He testified that he had been hired by Catherine at the Teamsters Hall to create and detonate a bomb in Pete's car a few months before the murder. This witness said he prepared a few sticks of what looked like dynamite and put it under Pete's car, but it was a fake. He collected part of his fee, easy money, he said, and left town. Several other men, residents of the Cottonwood area of Bakersfield, testified that Catherine and her co-defendant Charles Lewis made trips to their neighborhood to find a willing participant to do the job. The murder weapon turned up hidden in a bathroom in an apartment that Tomlinson and Lewis shared. The bullet in Pete's skull matched the rifle, and an empty cartridge found near the lucky spot also matched. The prosecution's case was solid. Looking for a gift this holiday season? Look no further. Notorious Bakersfield the Book is now available for purchase on Amazon. Simply go to Amazon.com and search Notorious Bakersfield the Book. Purchase your copy today. It makes the perfect Christmas, birthday, or housewarming gift. Remember... Eddie Thomason's intended wife, Iva Anderson, she ended up testifying. According to her, Charles Lewis was the trigger man, because Thomason told her to say so. Although Iva and Thomason had seen each other nearly every night since they'd met just a few months earlier and were madly in love, on the night of August 5th, they had separate plans. Iva went to a dance without Thomason. 
She said Thomason and Lewis came to pick her up around 2 a.m. on August 6th, the same exact time that Pete was murdered. They came in a strange car she had never seen before. Eddie Thomason's lawyer maintained that Thomason didn't really understand what was going on. His attorney said Thomason was hired by Catherine to follow Pete to support her divorce case. And Thomason was in a car at the lucky spot that early August morning when Pete was killed. But he was watching a fight between two other men when he heard a shot from the back of the car where Charles Lewis was sitting. As far as Thomason knew, he was there only to trail Pete and to collect information about Pete's running around on other women. Police linked Catherine to Tomlinson and Lewis through the used car dealer that sold Tomlinson the car driven that night. Using a fake name, Catherine called the dealer to vouch for Tomlinson and, and promised a $1,000 payment would be made in a few days, presumably from the insurance payout. Charles Lewis knew Catherine from the Teamsters Hall. He testified that he was approached by Catherine many times to find someone to kill her husband. Lewis wanted to procure a foil, and he thought he'd found the perfect match with Thomason. According to Lewis, Thomason bragged about the number of men he'd killed in the service, which made him fit for Pete's murder. Lewis stated that Tomlinson's plan was to bludgeon Pete in his own bed after he came home from a late night of gambling. But Catherine nixed that idea. After Lewis and Tomlinson went target shooting, Lewis noticed what a good shot Tomlinson was. So they practiced. Lewis would drive, and Tomlinson would shoot beer cans out the window. And that's how they decided to kill Pete. Catherine told them to do it when Pete came out of the lucky spot. They arranged a signal phone call to indicate when the job was done. That way, Catherine would be appropriately emotional when law enforcement arrived. It was a messy story for jurors to dissect. Tomlinson blamed Lewis, and Lewis blamed Tomlinson for the murder. Catherine denied everything. Defense attorneys for the trio blamed the murder on someone who Pete cheated in a card game or dice game. But it was becoming more clear that the murder of Pete was premeditated, and at least two of the gang of three were involved. Just how involved? was up to the jury to decide. Catherine's attorney, noted Bakersfield defense attorney Wiley Doris, portrayed Catherine as a hardworking wife and mother. The little woman, as Doris often referred to her in the courtroom, toiled away at work and then came home to cook and clean for the extended family who lived in their small home. The marriage was good, she said, until Pete took a second job. That's when he started stepping out on her. But they had reconciled and planned to continue their marriage. Catherine denied planning to kill Pete. She said she didn't ask anyone to do so. 
She did admit to hiring Lewis to follow Pete around, though, and offering John Harvey, the surprise witness, a car for doing the same. And on the night before the killing, she had actually instructed them to stop tailing Pete. As testimony was winding down, an accusation of witness tampering was made against Catherine and her attorney, Wiley Doris. Surprise witness John Harvey's sister was in jail on charges of child neglect. She said she was approached by Catherine to tell her brother to go to Mexico until the trial was over. In exchange for this, she was promised release from jail. It turns out that Wiley Doris did bail her out. The prosecution even had the receipt. Doris then accused Charles Lewis of colluding with the prosecution to try and avoid the death penalty. The judge warned everyone to stay in their lanes, and the testimony wrapped up after 18 days. The district attorney implored the jury to convict Catherine and Eddie Thominson of first-degree murder. At stake was death in the gas chamber or life in prison. Because he had cooperated with prosecutors, the DA suggested Charles Lewis be acquitted of the charges. Both Catherine and Charles Lewis were found guilty of first-degree murder on December 20th, 1950. The jury deliberated for 15 hours to return the verdict, but they said they were deadlocked on the charges against Eddie Thominson. With instructions from the judge to keep going, the jury was sequestered and continued to deliberate into the next day. Within hours, Eddie Thominson was convicted of second-degree murder. The trio was guilty. Sentencing happened before the year was out. 19-year-old Edwin Gilbert Eddie Thominson was given five years to life at San Quentin State Prison. He was paroled after eight. Public records show he lived in Fresno County and Placer County until his death in 2006 at the age of 75. Catherine Clark Hogan was remanded to the California Institute for Women in Tatchby with a five years to life sentence. She was paroled after nine years. She remarried in 1966 and lived in Central and Southern California until her death in 1989 at the age of 79. Charles Anthony Lewis was sentenced to life in prison. By 1962, he was petitioning from Folsom State Prison for his sentence to be set aside in favor of a ruling of manslaughter. Because both Catherine and Thalmanson had been paroled by then, Lewis thought he deserved the same. His petition was denied by the same Kern County judge who originally sentenced him. 1963, Adelia Lynn, otherwise known as Mrs. Sam Lynn, attempted to speak with Governor Brown about a pardon for Lewis. It's unclear if he was ever granted a pardon, but he did eventually get parole. He died in Fresno County in 1980. As for that insurance payout, Joanne Hogan, the Hogan's daughter, received the money in a trust. She married a local man and died in 2002 in Texas. 
This story was researched and written by Carolyn S. Harvey. Resources used, the Bakersfield Californian, Ancestry.com, and in 2013dollars.com. Carolyn S. Harvey is the co-author of Notorious Bakersfield, the book, which is now out. It's available for purchase at Russo's Books here in Bakersfield, 1601 New Stein, Suite 182, and it's available online at Amazon. Just search Amazon for Notorious Bakersfield, the book. Now, that voicemail I addressed at the beginning of this episode gave me an idea. Do you remember TV shows in the 70s and 80s that ended each episode with a tagline about the producers? There was this one. Sit, Ubu, sit. Good dog. And this one. Right, Mr. Walters. And there were others that I won't use. But anyways, that voicemail has inspired me to add a new tagline to the ending of each Notorious Bakersfield episode. And you'll hear it right now. This is Robert Peterson. Thank you for listening to this episode. I'll be back next week, next Tuesday, with another Notorious Bakersfield story. Until then, stay safe, stay out of trouble. Don't become a future episode of the Notorious Bakersfield podcast. Just helping you out with your facts there.